1: Hello, and welcome to The Ghibliotech, the podcast that soars through the sky of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm just along for the adventure. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Jake, welcome back to The Ghibliotech. Oh, it's lovely to be back. It's always nice to be here. So, are you ready for this week's film? I certainly am. So we've we've taken this wayward stroll through the whole library of Studio Ghibli films this season. I think the the link to last week's episode, Tales from Earthsea, was Gorō Miyazaki's first film. Is that this Cast in the Sky is Hayao Miyazaki, his father's first Studio Ghibli film? In fact, the first ever Studio Ghibli film. Full stop.
2: Yeah, and. I think this is going to be an example. This back end of the series we were on is going to be a lot of payoff, I think, oh, yeah. for uh, our strange way of approaching these films mm-hmm. um, because it has been fascinating to see the impact of those heavy hitters like Spirited Away and how they would shift the studio and how those narratives would change as well. But it's going to be brilliant to now delve into how it
1: all began. Mm-hmm. We're going very right back to the start mm. with Castle in the Sky... As always, we're going to be going quite deep into context, history, and then with your review afterwards, up up front we'll have the synopsis of the film as well, but if you've not watched the film, there will be spoilers. If a film that's 30-odd years old can be spoiled, maybe go and watch the film, experience it for yourself first. Yeah, I would say try and
2: watch the film rather than uh, re-watching the trailer or watching the trailer. I don't think the, the trailer that was available on YouTube... Uh, is a great representation of the
1: film. Uh, So just maybe go in blind if you can. Go straight into the film and we'll be waiting for you when we come back. But those who are still with us, let's take off to the castle in the sky. Legend has it that a floating island called Laputa lies just beyond the horizon, and an unlikely ensemble of characters are destined to find it. There's Pazu, the young miner whose father once caught sight of the fabled castle in the sky. Sheeta, a girl with a mysterious past and a precious necklace that points the way. The nefarious Muska and his military goons, and a ramshackle squad of sky pirates looking for a score of mythological proportions. But what will they find there?
2: Okay, Michael, so uh, at this point, in terms of Studio Ghibli, there mm. really is no context uh, exactly. at this point. This is a complete blank page. No one knows what this studio is really going to do yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but the main team behind it, who we know to be the core of Studio Ghibli, this is not like their first film. This is not their, their, their first, first rodeo yeah. at all,
1: Jake, no. Of course, Hayao Miyazaki, Isao Takahata, by this point, had had decades-long careers in animation, Most recently, we're going back to the mid-80s here, they'd had a huge hit with a film called Sakea of the Valley of the Wind, which we'll get to eventually, which is one of these films that is pre-Ghibli, but is now accepted as part of the Ghibli canon because so many of the key players are involved in it. That film is such a hit that they're able to quit their day jobs at the animation company Topcraft and strike out on their own. And on the 15th of June, 1985, they formed their own studio called Studio Ghibli. Have we actually said what Ghibli means yet? Uh, I think we may maybe way back when yeah. on the spiritual way episode we did, but. Ghibli is taken from a term which is the, means the warm Saharan winds that, that blow through the Mediterranean. It's also the name of an Italian World War II aircraft, Jake, yeah. if it's keeping the, uh, the aircraft theme going. I'm beginning to think going. they like aircraft. I mean, One of them at least yeah. does. But of course the theme here is that this new studio will be a new, you know, brand new, fresh creative force that will blow through the industry and revolutionize it. And financial support in these early days come from the, comes from the publishing company, Takuma Shoten, who we've talked about before, mm-hmm. and a key player early on is the editor of one of the one of the magazines, Age. It's Toshio Suzuki, who'll become quite a titanic figure. He is figure. the MVP of these <laughs> films. He is. He's the Nick Fury in the background, yeah. putting, putting the band together. But their goal, this new studio, was to offer feature animation, not the TV animation that Miyazaki and Takahata have been famous for for many years in the past. Uh, They'd cut their teeth on and the first project would become Castle in the Sky. Now, already at this very early stage, there are multiple sources that say different things about why Castle in the Sky was their first project. One that... I've seen a few re- refer to, I'm not sure how apocryphal it is, is that this project was kickstarted very quickly off the back of Nausukea because so much of the money made off that film was funnelled into personal projects, specifically a documentary that Isao Takahata was making, a live-action documentary about a canal system in the city of Yanagawa that eventually would balloon to nearly three hours long and was almost completely uncommercial. So they said, quick, Miyazaki, can you make like a fun animated film that can make some money back? I don't know how apocryphal that is. That film hasn't been officially released in the UK yet. I dream of seeing that I mean, film. We're going to have to cover it someday if it ever does. But that's the potentially apocryphal story. The official story is um, that Miyazaki ra- writes this original proposal in December of 1984, at which point the possible titles for this project include... Young Pazu and the Mystery of the Levitation Crystal, The Flying Empire and Flying Treasure Island. And he writes about how this was going to be a 90-minute film that will aim to be fun, intensely thrilling, classic action film. It will have laughter and tears and a sentimentally honest spirit. And will also depict themes of emotional bonding and self-sacrifice, things that modern audiences are skeptical of, but without realizing it, really crave. This is a project to bring animation back to its roots. Miyazaki talks about a confluence of influences here, including good old boys' adventure stories like Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, or of course Gulliver's Travels, where he gets the name Laputa from, mm. which is in, which is one of the locations that Gulliver travels to in that book. Also, there's Jules Verne influences here. The way that this is going to be a retro futurist adventure story with almost a steampunk vibe. So this is a, meant to be a big, fun adventure.
2: But also it has that, if he's trying to bring in a wider audience and looking at when this is made, this is just uh, post-big-hits spielberg as well exactly and from a
1: western side of thing i think that's the influence that we're seeing in this film or vice you think versa. So this is very jones in yeah. it post indiana jones and post et but i think anime at the time again I, i'm not really an expert on early 80s anime but miyazaki talks about a cynicism in a similar way to what we see with comic book movies now is the style starts to gravitate towards an older audience as the, the genre matures. And he sees it as being cynical and bloody and, and, and too confusing and convoluted. He wants to go back to a younger audience and be more earnest and whimsical. Mm. And that's what this project is supposed to be. And of course, part of that is capturing the magic of flight. That's a great quote here from Miyazaki saying, flying, like in Laputa, was my childhood dream. To recreate my childhood dreams, I created a fictional island called the Pewter, a stage for sci-fi adventure. And part of this inspiration uh, comes in 1985 when he comes to the UK, actually, for a, a, a tour, a sort of a, 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 a sabbatical a inspirational jaunt. And this is around the time where he goes to Wales and there's just been the miners' strike in, in the, in the right. early 1980s, which, of course, fails and it's a very... Complicated time in British political history, but he writes, I was in Wales just after the miners' strike. I really admired the way the miners' unions fought to the very end for their jobs and communities, and I wanted to reflect the strength of those communities in my film. I saw so many places with abandoned machinery, abandoned mines. The fabric of the industry was there, but no people. It made a strong impression on me, a whole industry with no people. So then that comes in with Pazu becoming a young miner and early scenes in Castle in the Sky being based in this mining community mm. and very much a tribute to the people there a quick word on the music isa takahata is here as a full-blown producer and uh, joe Hisaishi was brought back he'd worked with them for the first time on nasa um miyazaki says that at this point in his career he really doesn't know a single thing about music so takahata's main job is sorting out all the music where it goes what it's going to sound like he does give uh Hiseishi some like basically three words of Basic direction, which is he wants the, the music to capture dreams, romance, and adventure. And I think this is maybe one of Joe She's best scores. I would have to agree, yeah. As we'll, well, maybe we'll get back to that in a second. But the film's released second of August, nineteen eighty-six, and it doesn't really do as well as Nausicaa. It makes maybe two thirds of the, of, of the box office that that film did. Not a great start for the new studio, and of course. After this, they go and make the double bill that doesn't do much money with Totoro and the Fireflies. So then
2: we get to where we started
1: this season with Kiki of having to really save the whole thing. So this is COG's almost stumbling start. However, Castle in the Sky becomes very slowly this cultural juggernaut. It fares really well on home video. The soundtrack becomes a bestseller. And particularly on television. It becomes this regular screening over the years, so almost annual screenings that become almost appointment television for mm. people and a highlight of the television calendar. And the years since release, it's had a huge influence on anime films, TV series, video games, particularly, I think, of Final Fantasy, the mixture of um, high fantasy settings but also airships. I think of... The Legend of Zelda games, Super Mario Brothers, Sonic the Hedgehog. You can see almost little seeds of Castle in the Sky in all of these game series. And then you know, it's it's a favorite of many anime fans. It regularly tops or comes quite high in popular polls of the best anime films of all time. Mamoru Oshii, the creator of Ghost in the Shell, says that it's his favorite Ghibli film. When he's asked, admittedly, this is in the mid-90s, he says this, so... That's before Princess Monique. it's when Marty was there. Exactly. But back then he says, Castle in the Sky is the one. But is it the one for you, Jake? <sighs> it's A1. <laughs> 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 All right. Yeah, we should
2: probably delve into it. Yeah. Um, Shall we see what I made of this?
1: Let's see what you made of it. So, Jake, at this point, this is the earliest we've gone with Miyazaki. You've seen maybe the five or six films he makes after this, the films that make his name, the films mm. that set the foundations, the, the style and tone of Ghibli. This is the earliest we've, we're going in this miniseries. Do you recognise things here? Or are the things that are even new to you even now?
2: Well, uh, we, we're starting with clouds and a plane. Uh-huh. And so... Initially, I've got that lovely uh, comfort of knowing I'm in a Waisaki film uh-huh. um, with some of my, always my highlights. Yeah. Um, but there are certainly elements that I pick up on here that I feel like just get dropped after this film. There okay. are uh, beliefs, there are visuals, uh, there's even some tonal stuff that we would never really see resurrected. But there's also lots of ideas um, that we will never see dropped from a Miyazaki film, uh, that they're clear are just part of his DNA from the very start. Mm. And it's interesting thinking about it from a contextual point of view, uh, that if this is the commercial prospect that it needs to be to create the studio, how much of it is him aligning to his personal beliefs and how much is it him saying, uh, how much is it him wanting to create a commercial product mm-hmm. and
1: so where do we start with this then maybe we should start with these these aerial sequences mm. and flight. and this is pre-porco rosso we've discussed that already we also have kiki's literary service in the film that comes a couple of films after this where flight is a key component yeah and this... we
2: open right in the action yeah. as well um and i think as you're saying about this being a boy's own adventure type film, uh, it, you latch onto it straight away um, and you're you're really thrown in and it's quite thrilling at the start. Um, compare this to Totoro or Spirited Away where you're almost drip fed the adventure um, where you have to earn it, first of all, going through the hardship and the uh, kind of, relaxing opening of those films um, whereas this doesn't have that at all we've got a girl falling out of the sky in a magic crystal and sky pirates and airships and planes that flapped us um, yeah. and that was perhaps not what i was expecting um, but i was also watching this film with friends uh, with a bowl of popcorn projected and i felt like unlike a lot of his other films that felt like the right environment. And very
1: quickly, I could recognize that. An entertaining opening, almost yeah. a, like a pre-credits sequence mm. like you'd find in an Indiana Jones movie. It's fascinating comparing the opening to this film with the opening to Porco Rosso, which is quite similar, an opening sortie, an mm. opening adventure. But where Porco Rosso almost undercuts all of the stakes and violence, this film is still quite violent and scary. This yeah. film has so many guns in it. You know, <laughs> going back and re-watching this after watching all the films we have for this series so far, it's, it has so many of the trappings of action cinema
2: yeah. yeah. But and it riffs on those as well. Like you've got there there's a brilliant scene of two guys who are flexing their chests oh. at each other that is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um and it's taking the mick out of the the macho bravado that we're seeing perhaps in Western eighties action films at the time of just guys wanting to
1: be as big and as buff as possible, mm. I love that sequence, so that's a bit later on when the the military goons and the sky mm. pirates come to the mining town and the big beardy bloke uh, decides to stand up to them and they just puff up their chests. Miyazaki said that he just let the character animators do you know go free with that yeah. one, and it shows that he's really experimenting with character animation in this that there the doesn't feel like there's a stock studio style guide Yeah,
2: No, and um, I don't know whether you would be able to help me on this. I felt like the backgrounds, in a way, had this, uh, like, depth to them that perhaps I wouldn't see, that almost, in a way, uh, the later films would be more detailed, but flatter, Mm. Um, particularly when later in the film we get to Laputa, it feels like it's just endless and it just drifts
1: into the Mm -hmm. background. They're beautiful painted backgrounds, aren't they? For me, it's more that the character designs, particularly their faces, look like they're more from the previous generation of anime, more in the direction of Astro Boy or thinking about Speed Racer, the sort of 60s, 70s anime faces, rather than what we'd come to believe to be Distinctly Miyazaki faces. I don't know if they, you no, definitely that as well. these aren't the faces that we're familiar with. There are some that point the way. I think that Mama, the leader of the Sky Pirates, yeah. is there, and there's the engineer on the the ship as well, with the big mustache who looks like the you know, the guys from Spirited Away as well. I, and, I
2: did wonder whether um, Matt Groening, uh, before making Futurama, had seen this because the character of Mom. Mm-hmm is very similar to the character of Mama (laughs) in this. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, going right into this, we get a lot of stuff that is almost a shock to me in a really nice way, like the the Joe Hasashio score. You had told me in the past that this is going to be different, but it's great. And you've got um, that sweeping orchestra feeling that we recognise from the later films, but you've got this lovely synthy keyboard Mm -hmm. stuff going on as well, which wouldn't really resurrect
1: again. Like driving synth riffs, Mm. which... I think visually this film inspires a lot of video games, but I think musically it does as well. It makes me think of a lot of Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Mega Drive era scores, particularly for fantasy adventures, those driving themes. Mm. It's just fantastic. Um, And the fact that it has those both side by side, two separate almost orchestrations, one for orchestra, one for synthesizer, it works so well in this. But let's talk about that central locale. We have in all of... His films, it seems. Porco Rosso, Keys, Service, Spirited Away, these central locations. And we have this mining town, which is like nothing else.
2: Yeah, and thinking about uh, the mining towns of Wales and him seeing that and seeing this idea of uh, a town without its industry Mm -hmm. or left just disappearing. What I really liked about this, we've spoken before about his passion for a hard day's work and how important that can actually be for a person. And not only do we see the importance of this mining town, but the town itself is literally within the cliffs. Mm-hmm. It's within the rocks. And it's saying that the industry and the people and the work and the landscape are all one thing. Mm-hmm. So so learning that about the, uh, his experience has uh, totally kind of formed it all together
1: for me. Th- this is a film for me, I, I, I really respect its reputation, but this is a film for me which has full 30-minute sequences that are perfect. And maybe it goes away from that at times. But I think the first 40 minutes, 30 minutes, where you're in that town, you have the the, the morning sequence where Pazu gets up, plo- oh, yeah. pl- pl- blows, blows the, the trumpet. trumpet, he makes some nice breakfast. So. Well, I
2: think uh, you mentioned about the start being this almost like a pre-credits. Mm-hmm. And it feels like that is where we take pause for mm-hmm. a moment to assess the situation. And because it is so energetic at the start, you just need that reprieve mm-hmm. for a moment and to get a sense of the
1: landscape. And it's just l- lovely. And it reminds me of things we've talked about before where sometimes these films are just their best, best when you're hanging out in a in an environment and yeah, you're, is, you're, you're marinating with these people in the, these, these communities. This is Chihiro sitting on the edge of the bathhouse. Exactly, or it's... Uh, the Howlsbuven Castle family hanging out with some laundry on a, mm. on a hillside. That's exactly what this is. But, but then a, we get an amazing minecart chase. Which is very Spielberg, yes, isn't it? Totally. It's very yeah. Temple of Doom. Mm. Um, and uh, he loves a train, but, but it's the train chase. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um,
1: but uh, amongst all
2: of that, with that energy, there's. A few too many explosions for me. Uh, we, you mentioned about the guns and the mm-hmm. violence. And that it does just get a bit much, a bit hectic. Uh, this is the closest Miyazaki will get to a Michael Bay
1: film. I yeah. Feel. You've come across the meme, haven't you? I'm sure many of our listeners have. have of the Miyazaki looking grumpy saying anime was a mistake. Um, which is you know, taken from uh, the, doc- the documentary, The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. I think he's talking about anime as the construct of what is taken from this film of quite accessible adventure, explosions, sort of explosion filled sort of film, rather than the anime of ideas and wisdom and spiritualism that he would then go on to create and he almost regrets making a film like this now Sakea, and the films before that that created an industry around those films created an expectation of what those films were and who they were playing towards. Mm. And infantilization, I think he sees it as. When he's very glum about anime, I think that's what he talks about. And that's what this is. There's a whole middle sequence where the first robot wakes up. And the robot creations are absolutely wonderful. Yeah, like this...
2: He's got the personality of a no-face in a way, but mixed with the iron giant. It's, It's lovely.
1: But there has to be... He's, it feels that at this stage in his career he can only talk in extremes. So the tragedy of the robot is that they're these lonely, soulful beings but their only response when provoked is to destroy. And the castle in the sky is this place of wonder and untold technology but it's also a superweapon mm. and needs to be Taken away from human beings because human beings, when given technology like Prometheus, will just burn everything to the ground. And I think as he goes on, he becomes he, that wisdom comes through a little bit more in his work. And here it's a bit blunt, it's, it goes to extremes. Yeah. There is a 90 minute version of this film, which I think would be perfect if you cut out a lot of that action, a lot of the antagonistic forces of Muska. Yeah. Again, a a, a I think, very broad villain figure.
2: Yeah. Along with Sheeta as well, two characters that are almost essential to the plot but aren't given as much time to really make you feel the weight of them and their importance mm-hmm. um like she starts the film mm-hmm. and you feel like from that beginning how important she's going to be but then it becomes pazu's film and i think the villain plot is unleashed a little bit late um and he's a bit twirling mustache <laughs> he's as well this, isn't he? um and there's not really any uh, balance in the stakes of this as well. Thinking about how he would go on to really uh, try to erase any binary between antagonist and protagonist.
1: Here, we're not getting that at all. You have like the ultimate villain move of what does he do? He shoots off her ponytail. Mm. It's like he could have shot her in the face, but no. It's such a Western bad guy move, isn't it? Yeah. But I feel that the other sequence that I think is incredible is when they first reach the, the island in the sky, and it's just the two of them in this very quiet space. It reminds me of parts of the Legend of Zelda games where you're just in a, an expansive, ruined abandoned area discovering the, the the wildlife and the ruins of a form of civilization there but also i think that captures their their relationship when they're still tied together from when they were in the glider and they're they're, they're rolling about and giggling in the grass and yeah. then you see the robot that's tending to the to the birds uh, uh, of the island it's quite beautiful yeah. isn't it
2: i really love that um and the glider uh is a really neat bit of that's how they get to laputa that it's not a uh, it's not necessarily a mechanical construction a glider has no engine it has no uh moving parts uh ultimately they have to rely on nature
1: to let them get to laputa mm-hmm. they have to ride the wind so to wrap up do you think that this final twist towards being an eco fable does it land where the moral of the story is just literally said between characters where um it's said to Muska, your weapons may be powerful but you can't survive separate from the earth does it feel a bit earnest does it work
2: i like what it stands for but i don't necessarily like it in execution mm-hmm. um and maybe that's what we'd see in Princess Mononoke or House Moving Castle. Um, it's that earlier section, the Totoros, where he just he manages to stick that landing without necessarily directly addressing it at all. And those films are wonderful for it, um, where you are not really directly being addressed. And this is really on the nose in terms of its delivery at the end, but also with its characters as well, and it's it's all quite
1: brash. Mm. Well, it's, as you say, he nails it so perfectly in Kiki's Delivery Service where you have a young girl on her broom flying with the flotilla of, of birds. Yeah.
2: Also, I would like to mention that I think, maybe slightly tinfoil hat, but uh, Kiki's outfit in Kiki's Delivery Service is the same as Sheeta's in Castle in the Sky, or very similar. And I think that's Miyazaki addressing the fact that Shita is an underwritten
1: character. (laughs) It's like writing previous wrongs. Yes. Okay. Well, now let's park that there. (laughs) Let's see if their Castle in the sky may be up there with Kiki's literary service in our estimations. Let's do it. Let's put this film on the leaderboard. In the past, this section has been called the leaderboard. But responding to some listener feedback, I think let's, let's broaden this out. This can be the leaderboard and Jacob's Ladder in one go. Because really, by this point, you've watched over a dozen of these films. I'm just as interested and listeners are just as interested to hear where these films land for you. Okay, I'm, I'm prepared. And maybe now, now that we have 15, 16 and onwards films to put into this list, let's break this out into tiers rather than recounting the entire countdown yeah. every time but jake you go first where does this land for you um so I, I really enjoyed this film um it
2: didn't give me the emotional punch that sometimes i want from these films um or that tightness of storytelling that comes with my favorites of totoro and porco rosso and um, it does kind of uh sprawl away a bit much uh so i'm going to put this Lower mid tier. Uh, So for me, that's ranking just above Princess Mononoke and below Spirited Away.
1: Above Princess Mononoke, Jake? Yeah. Yeah. You know my feelings on that film. Sorry, listeners again. I know. But then every day, every day I wake up and think that you're going to come to the error of your ways. Okay. Where does it land for you? Well, for me, this is mid tier, solid mid tier. I, As I said, I I completely respect this film's standing in the history of anime. I know that for many older listeners and older fans, this was the first film they saw. This was one of those films that somehow sneaked onto British television in the early 90s, mid-90s on ITV with a really old, strange dub. Um, But much of what I enjoy about this film is done better and in longer form, in more complete form in other films. Mm -hmm. So I think that this lands below the per- the perfect top tier for me which we talked about in the past including whispering the heart Totoro, tarot, of the Fireflies, Mononoke, Kiki's Porco Rosso. This lands in between Spirited Away and Ponyo f- where below this is films which have some fantastic ideas and sequences but just don't just don't just don't quite stick the landing as yeah. you say. So mid tier for me. But I realise that some people fi- fi- have this up there as one of their favourites. Yeah,
2: and I can totally see why mm-hmm. as well. Um, there are some of these where that, just, that idea doesn't click, but this yeah. one I can, I can see all those elements and maybe they just weren't clicking into place.
1: And now having discussed this, I really can't wait to see what you think about Nausicaea, which we'll come to maybe next series. Yeah. Because that's one that, again, it feels like you're not a fan of the epic adventures. Mm. That is the most epic. Okay,
2: Um, and well actually I'm really fascinated to see how this one is going to line up with our next episode we're going from
1: the first to the last well the last one currently of Mm. course we're going to The Wind Rises next which to date is Miyazaki's last released film of course he has one coming out 2020, 2021 do you know anything about The Wind Rises Jake? I just know it's about planes (laughs) And you're pumped about the planes. I'm,
2: I'm very excited
1: about the planes. I'm very excited for you to see this. This is a film that I saw at the Venice Film Festival. And the first time I saw Ghibli in a premiere context. Oh, I was so excited when I got the chance to see this. I can't wait to discuss it with you, Jake.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, we have hope you've enjoyed your time in the Tech. Uh, next week as we said it's The Wind Rises uh, until then you can keep up to date with Michael on Twitter at Michael J. Leader
1: and you can follow Jake on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham
2: Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production our music is made by Anthony Ng our artwork is by Sophie Mo and Lister
0: Russell makes us sound good the show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. That's me.
1: Hi everyone, thank you for sticking with us through the credits. Today's Nugget is all about the power of one word. We'd spoken earlier about how Castle in the Sky's popularity over the years has been sustained by repeat screenings on television in Japan. Well, in August 2013, a TV screening of Castle in the Sky helped break the world record for most tweets in one second. This is part of a recent tradition where viewers would tweet the word BULSE when the magic phrase is uttered at the end of the film. During that screening, there was a spike of over 140,000 tweets in one second when the BALS line came around. To put that in context, Twitter at that point reported an average of just under 6,000 tweets a second in general. So here's a reminder, if you even needed one, don't underestimate the power of Studio Ghibli.